You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Uh, good morning. I am privileged to preach this week. My name is David. I'm pastor for Creative Arts. And Pastor Brad is finishing his vacation. So I get to fill in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Ricky in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. This morning, I will not be preaching 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you read ahead this week, you will see why I'm okay with letting our lead pastor take point on that one. Uh, Brad called dibs. He's going to pick it up as he returns. So I'm going to take a slight divergence into 2 Corinthians similar to what Mike Rader did when he was here in May. So you can turn to 2 Corinthians. Uh, when reading either of these letters in Corinthians, though, the letters to the Corinthian church, it can get really confusing really quickly. It's similar to what Ricky mentioned last week, actually, with the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's confusing, I'll give him that. But for nerds like me who are committed to watching every single movie and every single show that comes out, I have a good idea of what's going on. And I can catch all of the little cameos and flashbacks and and callbacks that happen here or there. But if you've never watched a Marvel movie before, and then you decided to go see the new Thor movie, for instance, uh, you're going to have very little idea what's actually going on. I mean, who, who is that person? Why did they just laugh at that? What's going on here? Is that person important? Why is it so loud? Is that another 80s rock song? Or if for some reason you've never seen Star Wars, uh, but you decided to go watch uh, The Rise of Skywalker when it came out. It's a movie that tries to tie together eight previous movies, and so there are little lines and cameos and little callbacks that most fans enjoyed. However, if you just jumped in to that movie, Who's that person? Are they bad or are they good? Should I care about that person? Wait, do they, how do they know each other? Is, is that a ghost Muppet? And if you jumped right into 2 Corinthians, it would be a little similar to that. Because what, what is Paul talking about here? Who, who is Timothy? What did Titus do? Is Paul mad? What happened to the church this time? Which letter is this exactly? What, what is this covenant stuff? He has some cracked clay jars. It's important to remember that 2 Corinthians is part of the New Testament, which is part of the Bible. And that context is really key as well. Just like you need to have watched all those movies to get all the little things. The more that we're familiar with the text, when Paul uses little phrases or allusions to other parts of the Bible, if we're familiar with the stories or the ideas then it's really rich experience reading this letter. If we haven't spent as much time in God's word, however, we may be missing out on a lot of amazing interplay or reinforcing of ideas or fulfillment of promises or cameos from Moses and Elijah. More on that when you get to Revelation. Uh, but I digress. Our series has been in 1 Corinthians, which is actually the second letter that Paul wrote. So, The church was planted in the early 50s AD, and that's recorded in Acts 18, so you can read that prequel, if you will. Then, about a year or two later, Paul heard that things were getting kind of weird, and he wrote a letter explaining, 
as if this needed explanation, that sexual immorality has no place in the church. And so he refers to that first letter in 1 Corinthians 5. So we'll hear more about that next week. So these letters were to be read in public, kind of like I'm doing now, reading from a manuscript. A letter that Paul sent would be read for the gathered church. And so they're meant to be read in front of everybody, and the first letter didn't really seem to have the intended response of repentance. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, his second letter. So then Timothy, a partner in Paul's missionary journeys, was passing through Corinth about six months later after Corinthians had already been received, and he found that things still weren't any better. So then Paul made a trip to Corinth, which is very much the go-get-your-switch moment that Ricky mentioned last week as well. Like, Paul called their bluff, and he came to town to rebuke and encourage them in true godliness. As you might imagine, that didn't go very well. So Paul left discouraged. He then wrote a painful letter to them, one that he describes as characterized by tears. So for us, imagine that really, really long text message that you labor over for like two hours, and then you just stare at it in anguish before you finally click send. So then magnify that by the labor that it takes to dictate that to a person who's writing it, and then send it with a friend to hand deliver it. So Titus, another of Paul's missionary partners, delivers this painful letter, and it seems to have had an effect. They demonstrate repentance. About six months after that, Paul then writes 2 Corinthians, and he sends it with Titus again. So now, when we read this first part of 2 Corinthians together, we have some context for it. We're not going to be wondering, what, what is he talking about? What, what's going on? Why did he start it this way? So would you stand with me as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This letter begins in pretty typical fashion for Paul's correspondence. He's reiterating his authority in this introduction, which is a big theme throughout all of these correspondences with Uh, the church at Corinth. He's reiterating his authority and connecting it directly to God's will. Paul didn't necessarily choose to be an apostle and work really hard to get there, but rather God chose to use Paul in this way. The enemies of the gospel who were at Corinth at this time, they continually called Paul's authority into question 
over the last several years of the Corinthian church. And we get glimpses of this in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But it was probably happening in person too and in the other letters that we don't have. So 2 Corinthians is Paul's apologetic, in a way, for his authority that's derived from God. He's God's ambassador. So what he's teaching is coming from God. And Timothy is also mentioned to kind of establish his authoritative representation of the gospel. It's also notable that the church is God's. It's not the church of Corinth or the church of the Corinthian people, but rather God's church in Corinth and in the wider area of Achaia. It's literally the church of God that has its being or expression in Corinth. So we are the church of God in the greater Andrew Lillington metroplex. Paul invokes grace and peace from God, as he often does in the beginning of his letters. But remember, this isn't just a one-off letter, right? This is at least the fourth piece of correspondence that's happened between them. And the last time they saw each other, they ignored Paul's teaching to his face, and he left them discouraged. So yes, they responded to his most recent letter with repentance. But the last time they were in person, they weren't having dessert at a potluck and shaking hands. He was being attacked and slandered and is continually being questioned as to whether his authority is legit. So all the while, Paul had confidence that God would do a work in this crazy, messed up people in the church of God at Corinth. So Paul's response is to pray grace and peace over them. But don't sleep on the meaning of the word grace just because it's in our church's name, okay? In Greek, this is the word charis has a wider range of meaning than merely grace in English. And it's, it's unmerited, unearned favor and a gift of God that's a demonstration of his love for us. So it's not merely a concept, but demonstrable action by our loving God. That's all wrapped up in these five letters, grace. And similarly, don't, don't glance over the meaning of peace. This is one of those cameos or callbacks if we were watching the movie of 2 Corinthians. Peace here is a Greek word, irene, but it's intended to evoke the Hebrew word that we just sang, shalom, which is more than just the cessation of hostilities. It's more than just a moment of quiet while the kids are asleep. We, we sang about this. Shalom is wholeness. It's contentment. It's the sense of everything as it should be. It's unbroken fellowship with God and with others. So Paul is praying for this kind of wholeness, which is only ours in the grace of Jesus. He's praying for that to characterize the church of God at Corinth. Oh, that grace and peace would characterize us as well. The main part of our text for this morning, though, is is verses 3 through 5. And I'll be honest, since I got to choose my text, I chose one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. These verses have proven themselves in my life at many important times, one of which I'll share in just a little bit. So verse 3 begins with, blessed be or praise be. And this is Paul including another cross-reference to a prequel, if you will. This is from the Hebrew Baruch, the Barakah Jewish prayer. It's part of the synagogue liturgy. So public prayers would begin this way, especially benedictions, the good word that we usually use at the end of a service to send us out. Uh, That's at the end of our liturgy. But here, Paul is beginning with a benediction 
about God the Father and Jesus the Son. So here's where our text gets complicated and needs a little bit more specific attention. Because biblical comfort may not be what you think. Biblical affliction or suffering may not be what you think. And biblical help may not be what you think either. I want to be sure that we have the right biblical definitions in our minds as we read these verses. So first, biblical suffering or affliction may not be what you think. So we're not talking about all the bad things that happen in life, just generally. Like we're, we, when we don't get that parking space that we've been waiting for with our turn signal on, or when you, don't get, when, when you get a speeding ticket that you don't deserve, or when you lose power in a storm. So basically, first world problems are not biblical suffering, right? In this specific verse, part of this specific letter written by Paul, there is, as you might guess, a specific kind of affliction in view. When Paul talks about affliction in the first person or in the first person plural, he's not using metaphor or poetry. He's literally referring to beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, betrayal, desertion, slander, nakedness, criminal assault, and more. So so try substituting that when you read this verse here. Who comforts us in all our beatings so that we may be able to comfort those who are being beaten with the comfort we've received. Biblical suffering isn't abstract, it's real. And by real, I mean it can be physical, psychological, or spiritual. Paul suffered in all those ways. Jesus suffered in all those ways. Followers of Jesus have suffered in all those ways. But in this specific verse, Paul is also grounding affliction or suffering in Christ, and that has so many layers, that's a whole other sermon, but biblical suffering is usually for Christ, for the sake of the gospel. It's also in Christ as we share in his sufferings. So in these verses, Paul is specifically talking about his suffering for the sake of his missionary calling to preach the gospel and plant churches. So what about our suffering? To what extent is our suffering biblical? Because again, Paul is specifically talking about his suffering here. If we pull back for a wider view, he is saying that these are the things he experienced while he was fulfilling his commission. So our suffering, insofar as we're seeking to follow Jesus and fulfill the great commission, can be understood in a similar way. How we respond to our suffering may demonstrate the power of the gospel, and in that way, Our suffering is for the sake of the gospel and God's glory. But let me be clear. I don't don't intend to proof text this verse. You know what that means, right? Like the exegesis of this verse is Paul talking specifically about comfort he's received from suffering he's endured. The principle behind this, though, is that Paul experienced all of these kinds of suffering as he lived out his calling. So our suffering then, I think, is in view when we belong to Christ and are walking with him in step with the Holy Spirit. So biblical suffering is affliction that we experience while following Jesus. And it may be physical, psychological, or spiritual, or all of them at once, which some people in this room have experienced and can bear testimony. There's a suffering that's the consequence of sin. That's a 
kind of suffering that's biblical, but it's its own category. And then there's suffering that's a direct consequence of following Jesus, which is the experience of many of our brothers and sisters around the world who can't meet in an air-conditioned room like this to worship God together. There's also the suffering that occurs in circumstances that God allows. These are three ways of kind of understanding biblical suffering, the afflictions we experience while following Jesus. But here's the thing. If, If you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't really have anything for you here. Uh, everyone's going to experience suffering, generally. I mean, that's a part of life. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Suffering happens to the believer and the unbeliever. If you don't follow Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in him alone, you may be comforted by believers, by your family, by therapeutic deism, even by therapy or counseling. But the comfort of Christ overflows with the suffering of Christ. And this is because Biblical comfort may not be what you think. Biblical comfort is not a giant fluffy comforter blanket that God wraps us up in. Our English term comforter has been hijacked by marketing in a lot of ways. So we just want to be comfortable in all our life at all times with air conditioning everywhere, memory foam and everything, and sugar in every possible food. Biblical comfort is not this. The Greek word here is paraclesis. You may recognize that as the word used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit is a comforter, but not a giant, fluffy, warm-weighted blanket of love. No, the Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that dwells in every believer, every person who professes that Jesus is indeed the living Savior. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, shaping us, cleansing us, energizing us for the work God's prepared for us. Can a blanket do any of that? When Paul says that God comforts us, he's not saying that God makes us comfortable. Did you hear that? When God comforts us, he's not making us comfortable. Rather, God's comfort is empowering, encouraging energy for endurance. It's empowering, encouraging, energy for endurance. That's the biblical comfort that Paul is describing here in this verse. So we recognize this because comfort is not separable from suffering. They're always interconnected in life and in the gospel. The experience of suffering makes us aware of God's power in our weakness. It's often at work before we even realized it. We may have been receiving comfort, biblical comfort, before we even knew we needed it. The encouragement to endure and the strength to persevere is ours in Christ. God will always be faithful to give us these things, even when we don't feel like we're receiving it. Because the experience of God's deliverance in the past and the assurance of his deliverance in the future is a comfort for those of us in the present. So if you don't feel that comfort in the present, Remember rightly what God has done and what God has promised. Throughout this benediction that Paul is giving, it's God who is praised, right? Since he is the source of all comfort, even though we are the hands and feet. You know, Paul was extending comfort and receiving it from fellow believers, but the source of it all is still God. Biblical comfort finds its source, its unending, undepletable source 
in God. The comfort that I can offer my wife or my kids through distress has a limit. At some point, I will expend my energy. But the comfort that God offers my wife through me, however, can't be exhausted. So when something doesn't work right on stage, uh, troubleshooting becomes necessary. Obviously, you need to hear my guitar in order to sing on Sunday, right? I mean, without my guitar, just kidding. But, but seriously, if you couldn't hear my guitar, uh, but everything looks like it's plugged up right, we've got to troubleshoot. And that means following the signal chain. So I have to make sure there's no break in the chain. So no break in the circuit. I've got to verify that signal is coming from my guitar through that pedal board that blinks down there on the, on the ground to the snake, that's the name for it, that's behind me, to the soundboard, and then to the speakers. And then you can hear everything properly. If I just tried to play louder on my own, you could probably hear some of it, and it may serve for a moment, but it would be exhausting and, frankly, a waste of energy. But if my signal chain is set properly, I can play the whole time. I can do finger picking. I can do whatever I want, and it's not exhausting, and it's hopefully not annoying to anybody for me just trying harder, right? The comfort that we receive while experiencing suffering flows from God. If we interrupt that signal chain with our own effort to try to provide comfort, it may serve for a moment, but it will soon show itself to be inadequate. If you're exhausted from providing comfort to somebody or you don't feel comforted, do some troubleshooting to make sure that the source of power is uninterrupted. Receive encouraging energy for endurance from God and then let that overflow. Because the Holy Spirit is a comforter, not a blanket or a person to make us comfortable. The Holy Spirit is our help. But biblical help may not be what you think either. This is a bit of a side note, because the word help does not occur in these verses, but I think it's strongly implied in the connection to biblical comfort, and particularly in the way the Holy Spirit is implied in this text. It's a very Trinitarian text in that way. Biblical comfort is help that speaks. And just as comfort needs to be distinguished from comfortable as we read this text, we need to distinguish biblical help from somebody just paying it forward in the Starbucks line, or someone getting the other side of that box that's just a little bit too big or heavy, or glancing over your kid's shoulder to give them help on a math problem in their homework. That's, that's not biblical help. Biblical help finds its Hebrew root in the word azer, which is part of Ebenezer, a stone of help. So the line from Come Thou Fount that I always take time to explain when we sing that hymn, I hope that's not annoying to you when we start talking in the middle of a song whenever we do this. But when we sing, Come Thou Fount, I stop because we sing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. So the stone of help is a marker, a stone of remembrance, to help us remember that it's by God's help that we've come this far. But this does not mean that God was behind us with his hand on the back of the bike seat, making sure that we're doing most of the work, and then he lets go, and we've got our balance. That's not biblical help. It's way, way more robust than that. Azer is used to describe military aid from a position of strength or supply. So Azer is help that comes from outside, from someone who's equal to or stronger than you, and it doesn't need to be reciprocated. So when we say with the psalmist that God is our ever-present help in times of trouble, God is our ever-present aid 
to, to give us aid out of his abundance with no need to repay him. He is a mighty king who can save us. This also means when, when God creates a help for Adam, the word azer is used. God created a warrior queen who could exercise dominion over the earth with Adam from a position of abundant strength and supply. The crown jewel of God's creation was not subservient to Adam. She was an azer with the biblical connotations of might and power. So from John 14, 26, we know that the Holy Spirit is an azer, our helper, who will teach us all things we need to know about God and help us remember all that Jesus has said. So the Spirit is a comforter and an azer. So biblical comfort is help that speaks. It's empowering encouragement and energy to endure. It's given to us by our very present help and his abundant power. And it's so abundant that Paul says in this passage that we're able to comfort others with the comfort we've received. So 15 years ago, Chad and Sarah Moody were told on Sarah's birthday that their one-year-old daughter had a large brain tumor. The next decade of their family's life would be formed by the interplay of suffering and comfort as they sought to trust God and follow Jesus. They suffered afflictions, physical and psychological and certainly spiritual. Even now that Callie is no longer suffering physically as she waits for the resurrection with Jesus, their family still has the afflictions of grief and the psychological and spiritual components of grief. And as Bella is sitting in front of me, I'm trying not to tear up, but they will bear testimony to the surprising times that God strengthens them and the times that they feel completely alone or overwhelmed and the ways that affliction and comfort and strength have such this entangled relationship. So as Sarah just graduated from PA school this weekend, partly in memory of Callie, the strengthening comfort that she needed to endure school came sometimes from remembering the suffering of her daughter and the desire to serve other families in physical suffering. So seven and a half years ago, our son Jesse was born. And although he was a 10-pound baby and he had rolls in all the right places, we found out through escalating events that included an emergency exploratory surgery on his two-day-old body that Jesse has Hirschsprung's disease. It's a 1 in 5,000 congenital disease that affects the development of the colon. So we went from totally normal birth experience to completely unknown territory as my son was airlifted to UNC Children's Hospital. And we had our other two kids at home who now needed care for a couple weeks. And my wife was in postpartum whirlwind of hormones and grief and trauma and emotion. I knew one person I absolutely had to call. I called Chad Moody. So while standing in the hallway at UNC, I called Chad. Because I knew that Chad had suffered through hospital stays that extended more than you planned. Loving a wife who was grieving really differently than him. Coordinating care for all the other kids at home. So I called Chad, and I experienced exactly what Paul describes in this text. The encouragement and energy for endurance that Chad had received from God during a decade of life in and out of the hospital flowed over to me in our conversation. 
The comfort that Chad and Sarah received in their suffering while trying to follow Jesus in their circumstances enabled them to comfort us in our moment of suffering while trying to follow Jesus and lead our family well. So Chad was an azer. He was a help to me. Not just providing helpful advice or supplemental assistance. He was a warrior who had been battling for over 10 years, who came alongside and gave me resources and encouragement to endure. He gave me biblical comfort. So how should we respond to this text? One way that I think it's necessary for us applying any biblical text is to remember how the world really works. This text only makes sense if we remember how the world really works. So this text presumes that the church of God at Corinth and the church of God in Fuquay, Verena, Andrew Bush Creek is a group of people that assemble to hear the gospel, celebrate God's goodness, and then scatter to live the gospel and demonstrate God's goodness. It presumes that we're interconnected so that the sufferings of one and the comfort of one may be shared in the sufferings and the comfort of another. We are not rugged individuals who are expected to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and deal with it. We are not expected to muscle up our own energy and persevere in our own strength. We are connected to one another, and we are connected in Christ. So why would we exhaust ourselves as if we're alone in this? Rugged individualism is not biblical. The work hard and everything will work out, also not really biblical, because suffering comes in physical, psychological, spiritual forms, sometimes all at once. So we must remember this, and this, that's how the world really works. So don't let competing narratives reshape the story of how the world works. When we gather to hear the gospel on Sundays, remember rightly who God is, who you are, what God has done, and what God has promised. Remember how the world works and how the world for a believer is supposed to work in biblical community together. Another way to apply this text is to let God comfort you. That may sound simple, but if we forget how the world works, if we forget how the Bible describes the world to work, if we try to be rugged individualists, we may not be inclined to let anybody comfort us, much less God, because we can do it if we work hard enough, right? Friendly reminder, this is not a biblical way of navigating the world. If you're experiencing suffering of any kind or of many kinds, be intentional and mindful about letting God bring encouragement and energy to endure into your heart, into your mind, and even your body. God may do this through his word, right? This is one of the ways that God brings comfort to his people the richness of his loving communication to us. So while experiencing affliction, remember that Jesus is our high priest who has experienced everything that we might experience. So go to Hebrews and read and remember. Or go to the Psalms and lament the brokenness of the world, the, the unfairness of the attacks on God's people, the work of the enemy. Lament those things in the Psalms. Receive strength and encouragement from God's word. God may also do this through his church. So let the church of God at 
and your Kipling Holly Springs come alongside you so that you may endure what God has allowed. Just as Chad walked with me, or Pastor Brad has walked with me, or my home group has encouraged us and given us energy to persevere, let God comfort you through his church. And then God may also do this directly through his Holy Spirit. Let the paraclete be a comforter to you by providing energy and encouragement to endure. Let the azer be a helper who strengthens you for battle and illuminates God's word so that you might see his love for you in the midst of your suffering. Let the Spirit give you gifts to use for the building up of the body of Christ so that you might comfort others even as you are comforted. So let God help you biblically in your biblical suffering, bringing biblical comfort as we've seen in this short passage in this letter. Because our sin brings its own kind of suffering. It's different from circumstances. God in his love sent Jesus to die in the only way that could reconcile us to God, destroying the power of sin over those who trust in this good news. As Tim Keller puts it, we're more sinful than we can imagine, yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we dare hope. And this truth, this good news, this gospel brings encouragement and energy to endure. It brings comfort. So as the comfort of God overflows in us and spills onto other people, we too will be able to say it is well with us. Though the enemy and our circumstances slam us around, though suffering might seem unending, let us remember who we are in Christ and receive God's strength and encouragement to endure so that the world will know that we follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son. And we thank you that you are a good Father. And as we relate to all the persons of the Trinity in our suffering, please help us to know the way the world really works and to receive all that you have for us. We thank you that you have shown your great love for us You've demonstrated it in Jesus. We've remembered it at the table this morning. You have shown yourself faithful to keep your promises. So may we remember those as well and take comfort, take energy and strength from remembering your promises. We love you and thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.